Podcast. Hey listeners, if you're enjoying our content, you're going to love our friends over at the Pivot Talks podcast. Pivot Talks is a weekly series where Pivot Methods founder and Power Yoga Canada co-founder Pauline Caballero connects with entrepreneurs, friends, dreamers, and doers on a variety of topics revolving around pivoting business and navigating change. Check it out wherever you get your audio. That's Pivot Talks podcast. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. If you enjoy the show and E2 is part of your podcast diet, you can become a supporter. The whole thing takes about 60 seconds. If you're interested, go to glow.fm slash E2. That's glow.fm slash E2. Today on the show is Derek Zito. Derek founded and bootstrapped redflagdeals.com in 2000, way back when. Canada's largest bargain shopping community site, which ultimately sold Yellow Pages in 2010. From there, Derek has gone on to found multiple companies, some under the RBC Ventures umbrella. He's also an active angel investor, and now he's at the helm of Go Walnut, an amazing new startup in the insurance space. In this one, we talk about the origins of red flag deals, of course, in the sale to Yellow Pages, what Derek's plan was beyond the exit types of companies and sectors Derek is eyeing as an angel investor, the momentum in the world of subscriptions, and much more. So with that, let's get to the show. Here is Derek Zito. Okay, so when I was doing some research, Derek, what I realized is I think the origins of rad flag deals were around the time that you just came out of undergrad even a little bit earlier it was my last year of high school um you know i this is 2000 so this was basically the internet bust um there wasn't a whole lot going on in terms of people creating like new ventures in sort of the startup you know vc type of road at that point in time um but i i wasn't even that far down the road i was last year of high school so i was just trying to learn about the internet trying to publish something on the internet and figuring out how all that worked. Um, so this was never designed to be a business. Um, it was just something that I thought, I have a bit of knowledge about saving money. I'm a poor student, I wanna save money, and how do I share that information with other Canadians? Because at that time, there were a lot of resources for US shoppers, um, sort of same story as it is today. It's a bit more mature um, south of the border. So this was just something that hopefully share some knowledge, learn about the internet, um, and then it sort of snowballed from there. I worked on it through undergrad. And then when I graduated, um, I went into it full time after actually working one summer at Ernst & Young doing some audit, um, which was not nearly as interesting as being an entrepreneur. It grew into one of the largest Canadian bargain hunting websites eventually, right? But what was the landscape like back then? Like, were there other sites that you were going to? Uh, yeah. So I, I would say at that point in time, it was just like, it was pretty dead. And, and I think the whole entrepreneurial community has obviously improved like dramatically since then. Um, at that point, um, you know, there were a couple probably small properties that were just sharing a little bit of, of information around deals. Um, but part of the attraction was nobody else was really doing it. This was a, a space that people, you know, weren't covering. Um, and so for us, uh, we saw a sort of clear line of sight to building a big community and modeled it a bit after some of the, the sites that were live in the US, um, you know, Fat Wallet, uh, Tech Bargains, Anantech, all these guys had sort of paved the way to build something. 
um, that was community driven um, about sharing content and helping people save money. Um, and yet none of that existed in Canada. Um, you know, there wasn't even back then, like, you know, there, you couldn't buy anything from Walmart. You couldn't buy anything from Canadian Tire Online. So it was really early days uh, for e-commerce um, in Canada. Um, and we were really just at sort of the cusp of it. The, the pro of that is that we could do a really good job covering the whole landscape because there wasn't that much landscape to cover. You know, the con of it uh, certainly was there maybe as not as many deals as in as many categories as we would have liked to see, but we grew with the market. And then ultimately I sold the business in 2010, um, stayed there for another two years. Um, and now Black Friday has really just taken over uh, even relative to, to Boxing Day. So we got to live through some of that. So now you can verify these numbers, but now 2021, it's looking like nearly 6 million or more visitors per month to Red Flag Deals. Is that about right? I, I, I can't verify it any more than you can, actually, because I'm no longer on the inside. But um, it's part of Vertical Scope. Vertical Scope recently uh, went public. This is one of the properties in their portfolio and one of the marquee ones in the Canadian um, sort of landscape. So it, it makes sense. Like we were at two and a half million when you know, we sold the business and the business has continued to grow since then. And it's still like the largest Canadian uh, consumer shopping site, you know, of its kind. So, you know, it, it's really powerful. The community aspect of it has sort of stood the test of time. And I think that will sort of continue to propel itself forward. If you look at things like Reddit and the way that they've sort of grown and evolved, it's sort of similar notion, right? Like how do you get community involved to be able to create their own content, help surface some of the best content. Um, and then there can be a curation layer on top, which is sort of the editors and uh, staff that we had on the Red Flag Deal side. And I think they've done a good job of you know making sure uh, the community has sort of stayed intact and people feel welcome and moderation and sort of the key things um, on that side. And you know even today, I think there's plenty of opportunities to, of course, grow above and beyond that to you know get bigger and to reach more Canadians. This idea of building a team and building a culture, this is something you have zero experience with, right? Coming out of undergrad, you're young, you're a first-time entrepreneur, you're bootstrapping the business, but ultimately you're, you're hiring. This thing is growing. You build a team of, I think, roughly 50 employees at, at one point. What did you learn from E and why that was helpful in this regard? Yeah, they had, I, I mean, they're a mature corporation, so they had a lot more structure, um, you know, back to how naive I was, um, you know, calendar management. I, I didn't grow up in, you know, in high school and have, uh, you know, Google Calendar and be able to manage a calendar in that way. So I remember this was still back in the, I have a, a physical calendar notebook that I'm writing notes down and checklists and so forth. Um, so, you know, team management, calendar management, um, you know, they did a lot of events for their staff for summer interns, for sure. So this was back to like, hey, we work hard, but what are the things we can do sort of outside of work, you know, as a team that we can carry on? And we actually did a lot of that with red flag deals. And we actually tried to bring in the community to that. So as the company grew and evolved, we actually held some red flag deals, sort of community picnics. It can't just be about the work. It has to be about the relationships. And one of the things I've certainly learned over time um, is that it, it's not, you know, always about, uh, you know, what is it that you're building or who the customer is. It's equally important who you're working with. Now that I'm maybe, um, you know, a little bit older and don't have as high a tolerance, um, you know, it's really important for me to work with people that I just genuinely enjoy working with. Did you have a litmus test of, uh, I don't know, um, a vetting process, questions that you ask people that you recommend in order to filter or figure out who's the right fit or who you might enjoy working with? 
I, I, I think at the beginning it's hard because, you know, I, I don't know any better. I don't know, like, who's a good hire, who's a bad hire. And I would say I, I was quite fortunate. You know, we hired a gentleman, Richard Fitzgerald. Uh, he uh, was our first hire on the sales side, right? And so up until that point, you know, we had been selling through agencies and they'd been selling the inventory on the site. But this was an opportunity for us to accelerate our revenue growth, keep more of the revenue directly versus sharing it. Um, with an agency, and I never hired a salesperson, um, you know, before. I, I think um, I was fortunate because uh, he had the right experience. He had, was at you know Yahoo and Rogers and had sold media in the past. At the same time, he was actually quite entrepreneurial and is quite entrepreneurial. So he's now involved in another startup that is in the construction space, for instance. And so trying to find people who are entrepreneurial, especially early stages, and sort of understand that there are bumps in the road. Um, helped a lot. The other thing I would say helped a lot is that we had an advisory board. We had about six people on the advisory board, far more experienced than I was. Chris Carter was one of the gentlemen um, that were, was on there. And I, I actually borrowed a bunch of his annual performance review templates, for instance, because what do I know about annual performance reviews, right? So having an entrepreneur that you can um, sort of work step and step with that is a couple steps ahead of where you are um, was tremendously helpful to me. How did you go about building your advisory board? There's probably actually quite a few entrepreneurs, founders listening to this that are thinking about this right now. Yeah, we, we were working um, with uh, uh, Jennifer Evans, uh, Sequential Communications at the time. They were our PR firm, and it was actually an idea um, that Jen brought up. Jen knew Chris, so Jen suggested Chris as another valuable member. So the people that would be a good fit for the advisory board is probably a mix of like skill set, skill set that you don't have, for instance, or a skill set in terms of their businesses being more mature and you know you wanting to sort of reach um, that level. So they've gone through the cycles, whether it be you know growing a business in sort of a rapid growth mode or selling a business like Chris did that before me, a couple of years before me. So it was super helpful chatting through like you know acquisition topics. What do we need to consider? What are sort of the key variables um, that we do want to negotiate versus not? Um, and walking through that process. And so finding people uh, with skills that you don't have, but uh, people I, I'd say that understand the entrepreneurial experience is uh, you know, super helpful. It's that openness to learning um, and that willingness to ask questions that's really important. And you know, people who are just like genuinely like you know, good people are willing to tell you, like tell it to you straight, like this is a good or a bad idea, you know, do or don't do this. Um, how do you get to the answer? ideally as efficiently as possible. Um, and people who've done it before, people who are ahead of where you are in the curve um, are great people to be able to talk to and have on your advisory board. The sale to yellow pages. Uh, two part question. One, what was the courting process like? Like who approached who? How did it go down? And two, is there anything looking back in retrospect that you would have done differently? The yellow pages was in this sort of transformation mode. So they had been on the lookout um, and they'd recently brought in Stefan Marceau. So Stefan went on to uh, found, you know, Ohm in medical, you know, wearables uh, space. Now he's at, at Thinking Capital. You know, he's a tremendous entrepreneur and he was brought in um, in part to help supercharge the transformation. So that's really where we started kicking off uh, the exploration of whether or not it made sense um, to you know, sell the business and specifically um, with the relationship with Yellow Pages. I, I'd met them, you know, years prior. We had chatted about working together on a more biz dev type of scope. So Stefan sort of kicked it off. Um, you know, I think that the call was more um, from a corp dev perspective. Hey, are you guys thinking about raising? And back to the question, well, we're profitable. We really don't need to raise. So, um, you know, that's not something that we're currently looking at. 
And then the discussion naturally evolved to, you know, would you be interested in exploring a sale? And the, the courting process was, I, I would say, fairly straightforward. One of the things we liked about um, the discussion we had, um, you know, with Yellow Pages was they were quite direct and clear in terms of what they wanted to achieve. And they were looking for digital acceleration. And, um, you know, part of the, the match there was ultimately Yellow Pages, you know, was and is about matching buyers and sellers. And that's really what we do as well on the red flag deal side. Their approach is more merchant driven. So it's like signing up, at, you know, merchants to then find customers. Our approach was more customer driven in that we find sort of the consumers and give them the best deals and content, but match them with merchants that are providing that. So we thought it was actually a pretty good fit. And, um, you know, probably end to end, it took maybe four or five months, but, you know, probably within three months, um, we knew it was a, a deal that was going to close. Um, so it was all things being said, like not a long drawn out process, I would say fairly efficient um, end to end. Mm -hmm. Things that you, you may have done differently in retrospect? Yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, back to the I, I'm naive and maybe this is the entrepreneurial optimism. It's a lot harder um, to turn around traditional businesses um, than it might first appear, uh, you know, my thought going in was, hey, we can help in so many different ways, right? And really add value um, to the larger business, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, the, the larger the business is today, um, you know, the bigger your business has to be to sort of make a dent, right? Um, so with Yellow Pages, if you're doing a billion dollars worth of revenue a year, like, you know, how much revenue, how many users you have to drive, um, to really make a dent in that, to be able to turn that around, and how fast can you do it, right? For RBC, um, which we'll get to, I'm sure later, you're you know you're doing billions and billions of, in profit a year. So how do you like build a meaningful um, you know sort of startup within those walls that gets enough attention that has the capacity to make a dent on you know something that is like just so large already? What we saw with the media business, I think at large, um, not exclusive to Yellow Pages, is that the international competition is really where you know they ate the domestic competition's lunch. It's the Facebook Googles of the world that soaked up all the ad revenue. It wasn't that the ad revenue was going to you know the Canoes or the Rogers or the Bells or the Tour Stars or any of the um, sort of domestic players. It's all the international players coming over the top. Um, so that's where you have to think about who is really your competition, right? And you have to build not just domestically powerful you know, brands and technology, you have to build internationally powerful brands and technologies to be able to stand a chance against international um, challengers that don't have any regulatory sort of walls, right? Like there's no reason that Facebook and Google can't just continue to, you know, continue to pull in users, continue to pull in ad revenue and continue to pull in a larger and larger share. And it's a self-fulfilling flywheel of data and algorithms that they have. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so you spend beyond the exit, you spend two years with the yellow pages. And then from there, you, you go on to this, you know, colored entrepreneurial path, I would say, uh, that complements the early days of, of red flag deals. But, you know, coming out of the yellow pages term, did you have clarity? At that point, uh, I probably spent 12 years, uh, you know, with red flag deals. There is a, a lot of Christmas and Boxing Day days that I was working, you know, maybe way too much. Um, I had a young family at that point. So uh, it was, you know, for me, a time to maybe recharge and take a little bit of time in between. Um, you know, I had started doing and I still do a little bit of angel investing on the side. 
you know, I sort of mentally toyed with, do I want to, you know, be more full-time active in that type of role? And ultimately where I landed was I'm a, probably a bit more passionate about operating a business. Um, so I'll do angel investing on the side, but for the most part, I'd rather sort of build, um, you know, net new businesses. And I, I enjoy um, sort of the challenge of taking something from zero to something and then being able to grow that. You know, I enjoy learning about like new and different industries. So I didn't go out and say, I built a deal site or a shopping site. I'm going to take 12 months off and build another deals or shopping site. Um, you know, I went in a different direction and, um, you know, went into HR. And then we later went into banking and now I'm doing insurance. So, you know, I enjoy the aspect of sort of learning about you know, sort of different opportunities. But what's fairly consistent, I would say, is like like some of these are quite antiquated industries. Some of these are just opportunities to transform um, that business and you know, hopefully these are things that like people deeply care about. People deeply care about shopping. Um, you know, people deeply care about, you know, their jobs and careers. Um, you know, same thing for financial services, insurance. Um, these are things that have a large impact on people's lives. And I want to be working on products and solutions that have a large impact on a lot of people. When you go to RBC Ventures and you spend three years there, for you, was that the right environment to start toying with some new ideas? Yeah, so uh, I, I think back to some of the themes you know we touched on. Um, the only reason I knew RBC Ventures had existed at that point in time because they hadn't even sort of you know called it that. It was more quiet and a smaller group than certainly it is today. Um, was because uh, Anthony, who I'd worked with in the past, um, went over to RBC. By the end of the summer, I got to the point where I thought, you know, let, I, I'm open to trying it. I'm happy to help. Uh, you know, I can hopefully bring in some entrepreneurial experience. As well, I met some great people. I thought, why don't we, you know, do something on a, a consulting basis? So I started um, doing some uh, work with them on a consulting basis. I told them, you know, I'm interested in this subscription space. I think there's lots that can happen, and things will evolve. And you know, uh, you know, as much as software is eating the world, you know, subscriptions are eating the world. Everything is becoming a subscription service. I know we align there. Um, so, you know, how do we and how does RBC think about, you know, the opportunity to sort of own the subscription space? And that's the road that we started down. We didn't know what that would necessarily look like. But, you know, again, thinking about what is the future state opportunity? Um, you know, if RBC wants to get ahead of the curve, if they want to offer products and services that are outside of just pure you know, financial services, what are the opportunities? And it felt like subscriptions, you know, could be a big one that was white space. Because if you think about the word subscriptions, you know, the way we talked about it was, if you said shopping, you know, people think Amazon, if you said search, people think Google, if you said subscriptions, people don't think of anything yet, right? So that's an opportunity for somebody to own that space. Um, I still think it's open, you know, it's probably a bit more dispersed than maybe the initial thesis, um, but subscriptions are getting integrated into all sorts of, you know, just banking applications on the B2B side, there are um, like sort of pure subscription management applications, but there's also what we think of as like financial subscriptions, which are things like insurance, things like buy now, pay later and installment financing. Um, and we thought, you know, that's a clear tie to like some of our thinking around how the subscription economy would evolve. Mm -hmm. When you launched Butter, was that the goal to be that brand that when people say subscription, Butter is what they think about? Yeah, that, that was the goal. I think, um, you know, th these things are always an evolution. I think that the big vision is we could probably touch financial services a bit more directly than we did. So Butter launched uh, as a subscription tracking application. So we would pull in your transactions and be able to map those and show you a subscription dashboard. 
as the first step. So how do we think about like you having visibility for the subscriptions that you have? Because as people have more subscriptions, a lot of times you just sort of lose it in your uh, credit card statement. Um, the pro of subscriptions is that you don't have to think about it. And that's also the con. If you don't think about it, sometimes you just keep billing for it and you don't even know that you're paying. You know, some people said they're paying twice for Google Drive or um, I didn't know I was paying, you know, so much for X. Um, so um, how do we give people visibility on that as the first step? And then the second step is to let people take actions on that. Um, and as part of that, um, you know, we did and ultimately we were able to get a uh, installment financing uh, application to market. So, um, you know, it, initially, holistically, uh, you know, maybe it would be a bit more integrated, but where we ended up, um, and this is sort of the natural uh, sort of entrepreneurial evolution, um, you know, I worked with RBC to launch RBC Pay Plan, and that's the installment financing vehicle for Microsoft and their Xbox All Access program in Canada. And that is more down this like a firm, you know, pay bright, um, you know, uh, buy now, pay later road. That really is just another subscription. It's taking something that's a one-time purchase and being able to term that out and make it much more efficient on your cash flow. And that's where part of the name, you know, butter came from is like, how do we sort of smooth the payments? It's more about cash flow than it is about like, you know, how much does it cost? Because people earn money every two weeks, generally in a fairly level fashion, but they spend money in a lumpy fashion. If you go buy an Xbox and it's a thousand bucks with Xbox Game Pass, it doesn't mean you're going to get another thousand bucks on your next paycheck, right? Same for travel. These are lumpy purchases that we think over time are just going to get spread out and turn more into this installment payment road. And I think the installment payment um, sort of path has accelerated arguably far faster than we could have even imagined. The number of competitors in that space and the number of consumers that are adopting it is just incredible. Mm -hmm. As you think about subscriptions eating the world, and I think that's a good way to put it, I think you know what's interesting is that a lot of brands, you know, whether it's on the product side or services side, so if you look at Netflix or Spotify or Dropbox or Shopify, Blue Apron, the, the list goes on, even Disney Plus and, and Lululemon's yeah, in the game. There's so many of them, even the, the massive open online courses like Udemy or Udacity, Coursera, these are all subscription models at the end of the day. So regardless of what they're selling, the foundation of the business model is still the same. And I think, you know, if you put it in those terms, people start to realize how massive this space is right now and how crazy it's about to get. Is that the way you see it? Yeah, I, I think like in some ways, like uh, everything is just a subscription and that's the preferred model for the, the business. And I would say largely speaking, you know, for the consumer, like, hey, I, I love my Netflix. I love my D Disney Plus. I love my Spotify. Um, you know, I'm not uh, somebody that would have went out and bought a bunch of albums individually. Um, but, you know, paying 10 bucks a month for access to all of this is the perfect, you know, model for me. And if I was a diehard collector and wanted to buy some LPs, I could still go and do that. There's nothing stopping me from doing that. But for the mass audience, subscription probably makes a ton of sense. You just get more access at a lower average cost. And then for the businesses, they, they like that. You start every month with baseline revenue. In the traditional world, if you're a retailer selling goods, like every month you start at zero, you need to build up to whatever your mark is. But if you could start every month with a stable base of revenue, like that's a huge plus. And I think even like traditional retail is going to get much deeper um, into the subscription 
path and you see it obviously the most successful programs are probably Amazon Prime and Costco. These are core subscription retail programs, but there's Panera out there with a coffee subscription. And now you have $10 a month of base revenue. I think they have over a million people that are paying them $10 a month. Like that's incredible as a baseline and they're gonna come into your store and buy other things. Um, and so there are certain businesses that are gonna get ahead of that and be aggressive and then really change their model. Um, and then there'll be other businesses that sort of test into it. But I do think over time, there's just gonna be more and more subscription you know, based content, products, services. You know, Peloton is another fantastic example. Um, it's a hardware and software combination and they're, they're super sticky. I, I think their retention rate is like 90% plus, which is sort of insane um, in this like fitness category. Um, so if you do a good job and you're creating, you know, great content, you're creating great value subscription, you know, is the way to go. And I, I think I'm a big believer that, you know, big ticket purchases look like cars, um, you know, cars, um, you know, one day that they can go subscription because people don't necessarily need to own a car. For instance, you can share, you can subscribe to it. Will it ever be hundred percent? No, but is it going to be meaningfully more than the penetration that it is today, yes. So the growth is towards subscription. I have you know, Instacart Express, I have Dash Pass, I have all these like subscriptions that are become baselines for me to spend more in their platform. So it doesn't have to end with you know just paying the $10 a month to Spotify. That becomes sort of the first step into a deeper customer journey for those people that wanna take that. And then for others, it'll just be something they you know, have access, 10 bucks is great. I don't need to spend anything more, but I have you know access to the world's music. How, how much better can it get? Yeah. And I think these programs have highlighted this new playbook that is super effective, right? Like in the world of loyalty, we've seen, and I've, I've written about this, I don't want to sound too preachy about it, but we're talking about the death of points programs here. Like these air mile free points programs, that's done. What we're seeing now is this shift toward fee for VIP membership in the form of like an Amazon prime where it's not a free loyalty program. In fact, you're going to pay for it, but because you're paying for it, you're that much more engaged. You're using the program more frequently and you're spending more money on the platform and the numbers back it up. Amazon knows that you're, if you're a, a typical Amazon shopper, you're spending roughly $700 on Amazon that year. Um, if you're a prime shopper or a prime member, you're spending double that same thing with Instacart express. It's roughly two X. The point is, the numbers back it up. And I think this is the direction of where loyalty is going more broadly. Yeah, I think it actually goes back to like some of the things we talked about. This is like part of them building out, you know, the community. This is part of them building out the one-on-one -on -one connections. And it just becomes like a richer pool of data that you have. And then you can engage with people in like different ways. So you can segment the audience between those VIPs versus the people that are just occasional shoppers and people are self-selecting. And, you know, I'm happy. I, 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 probably in the pandemic um, have just piles and piles of Amazon boxes that have just shown up and have filled my uh, recycling bin. And I'm happy to pay the $99 a year. Um, I actually, you know, can't imagine even living in a place that doesn't do next day prime. So, um, you know, it's amazing the type of value that they can deliver. And then they're just giving you like incremental value with prime video and prime music. So, um, you know, they get you really deep in the, to the ecosystem. Um, and are really building a strong consumer connection. So this is a neat little segue into Walnut. So let's talk about Walnut. So circa October 2020, right? Go Walnut is born. And <laughs> funny enough, 
insurance is just another subscription that people don't think about as a subscription. Obviously, you're thinking about this when you launch Walnut. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of this business and how it was born and, and where you hope to take it. Yeah. So, um, you know, while I was at RBC, um, you know, we were thinking about subscriptions and, you know, what subscriptions do people have as we analyze their transactions and one of the things that, that came up was, hey, look, insurance like looks, smells, feels like a subscription. Actually, mortgages also feel like a subscription. If you want to think about getting paid, it's just a reverse subscription. So these financial transactions um, are actually very subscription-like, but people don't think about it that way, especially for insurance, because they're not getting any um, sort of apparent value. They don't see the value in front of their face. So Amazon will you know, drop next day shipping boxes. Netflix has new content every month. But when you buy life insurance, if even auto and home insurance, it's something that you buy and sort of on your back shelf. And in many ways, um, you don't want to think about it. So one, it's an insurance uh, subscription that people don't necessarily think they have. Two, how do we bring it to the forefront a little bit more? How do we make it a little bit more interesting? How do we give people value? Because there's a whole swath of people with life insurance, for instance, that they just don't have life insurance coverage. So in the US, there's over 100 million people, 48% of the adult population that don't have any form of life insurance. In Canada, it's a little bit less, but you know, still meaningful number of people just don't have life insurance. And our view was, how do we get them baseline level coverage? That might just be 10K worth of group life insurance and then help them grow from there. And if they know they have a home or have kids, how do they buy more in a low friction, sort of easy to do digital native type experience that feels very much um, like you're picking a tier of Netflix, feels like you're purchasing a subscription because for people who've sort of grown up, the millennials and younger in that area, that's what they've been used to. So we were thinking about, you know, that, you know, what is the right area to play in? And then I actually got uh, involved a bit with RBC Insurance as they were thinking about, um, you know, how to you know build ahead of the curve, a little bit of that same thinking that, you know, Ventures was doing. And that's sort of what, you know, uh, made the light bulb uh, go off to say, hey, there's lots that we can do, you know, in the space, you know, we would love to be able to do it, um, you know, even, you know, with RBC and in the four walls, but, um, you know, doesn't make sense to do that. And where we ultimately netted out was it, it's easier for probably all parties involved um, to um, do it on the outside and to be able to build this subscription like life insurance bundle. And so that's what we've done with Walnut. Um, with Walnut, it's uh, either group or individual life insurance, and we pair that with Headspace for mental wellness, ClassPass Digital for video and audio on-demand fitness, and then we have Dashlane um, for digital security, password management, the ability to pass off passwords to loved ones in case you die. So we think about it as a holistic solution um, to life insurance, value now and value later, um, and make it really easy um, for you know younger consumers, uh, especially to be able to get that baseline level coverage. When you think about baseline coverage, what are some of the hurdles in getting a meaningful share of the market here? Because the way you describe it seems like a no-brainer to me, but obviously, uh, legacy industry, backed probably by legacy regulations um, and, and other factors that people don't realize. Yeah, so... I think the pro and con of it from a regulatory perspective or legacy industry perspective is because there have been those regulations, because it's maybe a little more legacy, that, that's the opportunity. That's what you know. we thought about it as it's probably five years behind where banking is. If you look at all the neo banks, fintechs and so forth, there's not nearly as many neo insurers or um, even you know new brokerages that are going sort of digital first, right? So that's part of why, you know, this is the why now question. Why does it make sense to do it now? Because 
um, in part, the infrastructure is starting to catch up uh, with the desires of the consumer, and this is the right time um, to build this sort of stripe for life insurance layer, uh, which is part of our um, vision as well. So what are the, the barriers? I, I would say, um, you know, the regulation is, I, I wouldn't view it as so much of a barrier as much as like something we just need to work through. It's sort of table stakes, like same thing. If you're a neobank, you're just going to need to abide by the regulations and it's just going to be a cost of doing business. And that's fine. Um, I think some of the barriers are just trying to get people to wrap their head around um, like a new way to go and acquire um, you know, life insurance. So it's trying to reach consumers in new places. Going back to this notion of how do we uh, reach them in more of like an embedded fashion? If you think about uh, buy now, pay later, nobody says, I'm going to go and borrow $1,000 from the bank so I can go buy an Xbox. It doesn't make sense, right? Like they do the buy now, pay later loan at point of purchase because um, it's lower friction. It helps with their cash flow. So how do we think about that in a life insurance context? And that is one of the challenges. Like today, it's really competitive for, I would say, high intent life insurance purchasers, people who go to Google and type in life insurance. Those are some of the highest cost per click keywords in the whole industry. Um, so you, you can't really you know compete in that fashion. And part of the way um, that it the economically works for them is that you have to sell higher ticket policies to be able to justify the higher cost per click for those ads. And our view is we want to get people baseline coverage. The number one reason people get life insurance is to cover their funeral and burial costs. And that means you can get 10K to be able to cover off those needs. You do not need to get 500K or a million dollars. Um, but the economics uh, for the industry today make it pretty hard for an advisor um, to be able to you know, justifiably sell these lower premium policies. And you know we're trying to make it digital so that we can support that type of motion. And we'd love to work with even you know, existing advisors that have customers that maybe do want the more complicated policies and they walk them through. If they just want you know, 10K worth of coverage, we'd love to give them an option from Walnut that they can basically present to their customer and still serve their needs. Is that how you bypass the medical piece? Like the no yeah, I noticed that, that that was a big, obviously, selling point uh, or is a big selling point of Walnut is that there's no medical required here. Yeah, so uh, it depends. There's lots of people, you know, like us that are doing, you know, digital life insurance. So in the U.S., you know, Ethos has raised a couple hundred million dollars now. Um, you know, Bestow, um, Bestow has partnered with Lemonade to distribute in Canada. There's you know guys out there like Policy Me, Emma, and so forth. Um, so for the digital life insurance providers, part of the promise is you can do it fully online. Uh, I would say there's always a caveat. It depends on how you answer the questions, right? Um, so if you have medical conditions, typically you're not going to be able to complete that online. That doesn't mean you can't get coverage. It just means you might not be able to get coverage in 10 minutes fully online in front of your computer. And it's still valuable to go through that motion if you need the coverage. At the same time, we do want to make it easy for people to acquire. So part of the value is to be able to do it like fully digitally. And you can do it in 10 minutes and you can do it with us. You can do it with other partners. You know, we want to give you the extra value of the headspace dashlane class pass. Um, but that is part of the added value of being able to do things online these days is you can up to certain limits um, be able to do the whole process online. You don't have to wait weeks to get a life insurance policy in force. Um, there are much more expedited paths um, at the same time. A lot of people don't necessarily know these paths exist. So that's back to how do you generate enough awareness so that when people are considering um, getting life insurance, that this is one of, an, one of the options that they consider and think about. So where are you at with the business now? 
you're, you're live in the U.S. with individual term life. What is the next inning of this thing? Yeah, so we're working with a bunch of partners in more of an embedded um, insurance notion, um, both in Canada and the U.S. This is an international business start. So you'll see us start rolling out with different partners over the next few months um, with both referral-based options for individual term and then for more embedded options that are sort of embedded into different products and services that is more based around the group concept. So um, we're, we want to get group and individual term live in the U.S. and Canada is really the next step. And then over time, we'd love to add more member value-added benefits like the Headspace, Dashlane, Class Passes of the world. That's very cool. I promised that we would come back around to predictions, uh, forecasting, and trends. Insurance aside, okay, uh, put on your angel investor hat for a moment. What sectors are you looking at? I still think there's lots of room to run um, in financial services. Um, so I see a lot of those, and I've done a handful of investment in those. If I take financial services, you know, sort of where they are right now and to the next step, it's all this stuff around decentralized finance that is super interesting. It's getting a lot more mature um, than it was even six months ago. There's, you know, banks like Eco that are now um, basically built on the blockchain, you know, yielding uh, in terms of savings rates, like, you know, four or five percent, you know, 10x what your traditional bank accounts um, are doing, and it's happening on both sides of the border. There's a company called Ledin here, L-E-D-N, um, in Canada that lets you access some of those same, you know, rates. You know, BlockFi again in the U.S., but I have an account. And so, what's super interesting about uh, decentralized finance is that um, it goes back to what we talked about with like the Googles and Facebooks. Um, the regulations don't apply in the same way. It's international at the start. So, you know, Coinbase, you know, I have a Coinbase account and, you know, that is something that, um, you know, people around the world in probably hundred plus countries um, can have access to, and they're not beholden to the same, you know, regulatory infrastructure. And so they've gone over the top. So I, I think this notion of doing things in decentralized finance, in the blockchain with crypto um, and sort of encroaching into financial services will actually create a tremendous opportunity for companies to go international, you know, for incumbents, you know, that's a potential risk that you're going to see all sorts of competition outside of your domestic walls. But as an angel investor, you know, this is a huge pool of uh, potential, uh, you know, revenue for all of these startups and, you know, potential profits. I mean, Coinbase is, you know, quite profitable and anybody who has a substantial um, sort of reach in this like crypto exchange space is doing really well these days. So I think there's tons of room to run on this whole DeFi space. Interestingly, I just got a notice from Binance that they were shutting down uh, all accounts in Ontario as a result of increased regulation. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a tidal wave of regulatory hurdles coming here. Yeah, I, I actually think it's not necessarily a bad thing. The regulation isn't um, something that I would look at and say, you know, don't get into the space because there will be regulation. Um, in some ways, it legitimizes um, the space a little bit more. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, some of the headlines, it's I, I think it was, you know, it was uh, J.P. Morgan um, that said, okay, we're letting our high net worth individuals now invest in some of these, um, you know, crypto funds. So there's more and more accessibility. There's more and more sort of recognition that this is going to be a part of the overall like investment landscape, for instance, in those cases, right? The question might be, uh, you know, how much of a share will they have versus stocks, EFTs, savings accounts, GICs, whatever it might be. Um, but I don't think there's going to be a question that it will be part of the ecosystem. So, you know, if that's going to be the case, like I, I feel like, you know, it's beholden on the entrepreneurs who 
you want to be more cutting edge, you want to build the next generation to figure out like what are the boundaries, right? And so maybe in certain cases, they've pushed too far, like the Binance of the world, and they have to reel it back a little bit. It's sort of a sign of the maturity of the space. Go Walnut. GoWalnut.com for more info on that company that you're building, Derek. Where else can people connect with you, follow you, see what you're up to? Uh, yeah, they can find me on Twitter at Derek Zito, D-E-R-E-K-S-Z-E-T-O. And they can just email me, Derek at GoWalnut.com if you want to reach me. Um, I'm happy to chat. I love talking to entrepreneurs. Happy to help. I got a lot of advice and support um, you know, on my way. Uh, in the entrepreneurial journey as well. So I'd love to be able to pay that back to the community too. I appreciate that. Um, well, this has been a long time coming, man. So thank you so much for the time and thank you for doing this. Yeah, of course. Happy to. Thanks for having me. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on ElectroCast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. ElectroCast. ElectroCast.